Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 4, as far as our reading is concerned. Join me now as we read together and read aloud God's word. Verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Shall we pray? Our Father, this morning we come bearing upon our hearts the the burdens of our church family and, and their family members today. Particular, Lord God, we lift up Carlos Simmons to you. And uh, we also lift up Doreen Martinez and her mother and her sister Susie. We pray, Father, for these who are today needing a touch from you. Needing, Lord God, this, this very miracle power that we read of in your word. And we know, Lord God, that you are still able and willing to touch those so that you will be glorified in what you do. And so we commit them to you, Lord, this day, that the power of your Holy Spirit would be upon them, that your healing, Lord, would go forth. Even we who today, Lord God, would say, Lord, even where they are right now, you're there, and you can touch them, and you can heal them. This indeed, Lord God, we ask in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that you'd fill us, Lord, with your spirit. Grant us your wisdom and understanding as we come to your word today. We ask, Father God, that you will reveal to us, Lord God, the things that are before us, the things that will stir our hearts to be witnesses for you, to be those who would go about shining forth in the light of the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We ask, Father God, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You all may be seated. If we understand the goal and intent of persecution from the perspective of of the persecutors. If we understand the goal and intent of persecution from the perspective of those who intimidate and harass and maltreat, for example, believers in Jesus Christ, it is certainly done to quash and to silence the voice and message of the followers of Jesus Christ so that the spirit and the strength of that movement itself would no longer spread and in effect, be extinguished, snuffed out, put out, quenched for good. The intent would also be to forcefully change the mind of believers, if at all possible, before settling for death. This, of course, is something 
that happens today. It happens in our time against Christianity, against those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And it isn't so much just Islam, but you see it also in Hinduism in India and all as they attack and, and try to change the minds of, of Christians, to recant their positions. And if not, then of course comes death. And how people today would want to see this message of the cross of Jesus Christ be put out, be snuffed out today. But as we observed last time, in the aftermath of the stoning of Stephen, as Saul of Tarsus strived with zealous passion to stomp out the believers in Jesus, all the persecution did was cause the message to spread from Jerusalem to, as we shall see today, even into Samaria. And as the Apostle Paul would later observe, he would concur through his testimony these truths after having been put in prison himself in Rome. So the very Saul of Tarsus who would, imperson, who would, who would imprison Christians and even allow them to be killed would himself understand the intent of this persecution. But realize that persecution cannot snuff out the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 12, this is what Paul says. He says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Isn't that what we spoke of last time? That the more that Saul of Tarsus tried to stomp, uh, stomp out or stamp out Christianity, the more it spread. And so he says, the things that happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That is, that is truly the heart of a believer in Jesus Christ, who gets confidence in knowing that you cannot stamp out and cannot snuff out and cannot put out the fire of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so because of that, we are much more bold to speak the Word of God. And so the great trek was beginning for the church as we see the persecution begin to intensify here in the book of Acts. But not being intimidated by the persecution, the believers were now scattering far and wide, going everywhere, preaching the Word. Caution and discretion would, would advise them and counsel them to be scattered. But nothing could advise them to be silent. You see, in, in wisdom they could be scattered, but they could not be silenced. And that is very key to our understanding of the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ to where it now has reached us today. It has bridged both distance and time so that we here today are receiving the same message that was given 2,000 years ago in the early church. It has come to us because no matter how hard the devil and, 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 his, and his cohorts try to silence Christianity, you cannot silence. You cannot silence what the Spirit of God is moving and, 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 and moving throughout the church. 
Now the reason for, for beginning in our reading in verse 4 here is to, is to make a comparison of, of what we would consider to be a single word. But in fact, in, in the original language there are a couple of words that we have to deal with. In verses 4 and 5 of, of uh, Acts chapter 8 it says, Therefore those who were scattered everywhere went preaching the word. And there I want you to take note of the word preaching. And then in verse 5 it says, Then then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And so we have two words, preaching and preached. And in the English it sounds as if they come from the very same root word. At least in the English it it, it seems that way. But the word for preaching in verse 4 is the Greek word evangelizo, from which we get the English word evangelize. Now the word here means, in verse 4, to announce good news. To declare, to show, and to share glad tidings, the glad tidings of the gospel. That's what the gospel, that's what the word gospel means. Glad tidings. Good news. It is not a formal word. It is not some word of, of great formality. It is just the people going here and there, continuing to spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The majority of those who left Jerusalem should not be considered as formal preachers. One commentator calls them And I quote, accidental missionaries who talked about Jesus wherever they went. That that certainly is not a bad thing, okay? It's not a bad thing to go everywhere you go. Speaking about Jesus Christ. So we ourselves can be just like those early Christians. We can surely share the good news of what Jesus has done in our lives. And I would have to say that in this room... Most of us, if not all of us, have had something done to us because of Jesus' love for us, because of Jesus' mercy toward us, because of His grace to us. And that is what we have as our testimony, to tell people whether it seems to be in a formal setting or not. Just to be able to say to someone who looks at us and says, Why are you so happy? Why are you so joyful? I can tell you why. Because Jesus Christ has touched my life. And I want to tell you a little bit about that. Because once I was blind, but now I see Once I was lost, but I've been found. Once I was dead, but I'm alive now. What a simple thing it it, it can be for us to share the love and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Consider that most people don't come to Jesus through a professional preacher or evangelist. I use that word carefully and cautiously as as well as loosely because really we don't like to be called or, you know, uh, evangelists don't like to be called professionals. And and actually we don't like to throw that word. but, But you understand what I mean when I say that. You know, people who have crusades or great big meetings. and See, most people don't come to Jesus through those things. They come to Jesus through people just like us. They come to people just like us. When we are someplace, maybe we, when, you know, we're, we're traveling or whatever, and we get in a taxi and we start talking to the taxi cab driver, we just tell them about Jesus. And somehow that is, you know, that is a God-given appointment, and, and all of a sudden this person says, I need to know more. And they may just give their lives to Jesus Christ that day. More of that happens. There are people coming to the Lord through great... And not to say that those big crusades are not good. Certainly they are. But the fact of the matter is, we have been given the Word of God. We have been given that message to preach because it has affected us. Remember what Paul told his young son, 
in the faith, Timothy. And as you read this, and I'm reading from 2 Timothy chapter 4, by the way, verses 1 through 5, and here we're going to see those same two words. Uh, I've already told you about one of them, evangelizo, and we're going to see a word that is related to that, but we're also going to see the other word, which I'll explain in just a moment. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His, ki- uh, and his kingdom. Notice verse 2. Preach the word. Preach the word. Now, that word is, is actually the word we haven't yet looked at. Preach the word. Be ready. And, but I want you to see the formality in this. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Verse 5, But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. Now there's the word that we've already seen. It comes from the same root word as... as, as, uh, Evangelizo, which is to evangelize, to share the good news. So do the work of an evangelist, do the work of one who goes forth and shares and, and, and shows and declares the good tidings, the glad tidings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fulfill your ministry in that. So now we see those two things again. Preach the word, do the work of an evangelist. But there are two different words. So now let me, let's, let's, let's conclude in our understanding of the first word. Are we simply talking... Are we simply talking about Jesus and introducing Him to the people that we encounter? Are we doing that? It's a question for you to think about. It's a question for you to to, to, to ponder in your own heart. Are we simply talking about Jesus and introducing Him to the people we encounter? Are we evangelizing, in other words? And is is, is it a natural consequence of our own intimacy with the risen Lord? This second question is very important. Is it a natural consequence of our own intimacy with the risen Lord? You see, many people will wonder why, you know, uh, I, I'm a, why is it that some people say today, well, I'm just a little bit afraid, I'm a little, you know, uh, I'm not sure, you know, have a little fear about telling people things or talking to other people or whatever. But that's not really, you know, when it comes down to it, that's not the question. The question is, do you have an intimacy with Christ? This is what the question is is through that intimacy with Christ, the natural consequence of that intimacy, the desire to tell others about Jesus as the risen Lord. It should be a natural consequence. It should be something flowing out of us that because we have an intimacy with our God and with our Lord Jesus Christ that we want to share. It just comes out from us because we are intimate with the Lord. So you have to ask yourself, am I intimate with the Lord? Do I pray? Do I read the Word? Am I hearing from God? Am I doing the things that He tells me to do? Because certainly He has told His people, go and make disciples of all nations. Are we doing that as believers in Jesus Christ? That is not the pastor's only, that's not the pastor's job for everybody. It's not my job for you. It is all of us. We're all called to this. So with that in mind, let's look at the second word. The second word of importance in our text is found in verse 5 of our text. Philip preached Christ to them. You see, first of all, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching or evangelizing or sharing or showing and declaring the good news, the gospel, in a very informal way. 
But then it says, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now, this is a different word. Because the word for preached here is different from the word used in verse 4. For the word used for preached here is the Greek word caruso. Just like the singer, caruso. Caruso is not spelled the same way, but it's pronounced the same way. Which means this, and this is what it means. It means to herald or proclaim divine truth. To proclaim to persons one whom they are to be acquainted with in order to learn what they ought to do. That's a, that's a long definition. But the understanding of the word can be seen in its usage in a couple of places in Scripture. This is a much more formal proclamation. This is a proclamation with divine authority. To preach and to say, thus saith the Lord. This is what you, are to, you ought to hear, and you need to respond to it, and you need to obey it. Listen to what it says in Mark chapter 6 of the, of, of the, concerning the apostles. Mark 6 verse 12, it says, So they went out and preached that people should repent. You see the, 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 uh, the end of that particular word. They preached so that people should repent. They proclaimed truth so that people would be touched and moved and affected by it so that they might repent and turn their lives away from the world and to Jesus Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, But we preach, Caruso, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. So now there is, there is some need for them to understand, to become acquainted with Jesus Christ and to realize you know, the, 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 the struggle that this particular message is. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. We are to become acquainted with Jesus so that we ought to know what to do for Jesus in obedience. Take, for example, what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He says, and without controversy, and by the way, this is a tremendous, not only a, a somewhat of a doxology, a, a praise unto God, it is actually a lesson. It is a lesson given to the church. It is a teaching in word to the church. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And here it is. God was manifested in the flesh. By the way, this is a great Sunday school lesson right here. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached, and there's the word, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Not only is the gospel in that, but is also the word of God given so that man would follow and live their lives for Jesus Christ. Preach among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. That is the mystery of godliness. That God was manifested in the flesh. That's Jesus Christ. Justified in the Spirit. Because he, he had received the Spirit from the Father. And the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Seen by angels. Preached among the Gentiles. And so you see the importance of this. A proclamation, more than just a sharing, even though both are important. And both are stressed, you see, here in Acts chapter 8, as it was stressed earlier on, uh, there in First Timothy chapter uh, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I should say. Both words were used. So both are important. Now this last verse here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 has everything to do with proclaiming to people their need to become acquainted with Jesus in order to learn what they ought to do. And so getting back to our text now, with the understanding of these two words, 
we see that another Hellenistic Jew, remember that Stephen was a Hellenist, and now another Hellenistic Jew and table server, waiter, cafeteria worker, Philip, we see he wastes no time in preaching Christ. He wasted no time in preaching Jesus. I want to emphasize that he preached Christ, not Judaism. I want to emphasize that he preached Christ, not religion. He preached Christ, not ritual. He preached Christ, not ceremony. He preached Jesus Christ. And to top it all off, he preached Christ to the Samaritans. That is significant here. Notice verse 5 again. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now, as Stephen is considered the first great martyr of the faith, so Philip became the first great missionary of the faith. We are told that he went down to a city of Samaria. And even though most translations will say the city of Samaria, uh, there was no city at that particular time that was called Samaria, but it was the region of Samaria. And certainly there were cities within that region. And we'll see in just a moment. But we're told that he went down to a city of Samaria, which doesn't mean that Samaria was, was south of Jerusalem, because that's our mindset. Whenever we see you go down, we go south. <laughs> you know, we're kind of Mac conscious, you know. But uh, actually, when it comes to Jerusalem, everybody goes up to Jerusalem. And no matter whether you go north, south, east, west, northwest, southwest, northeast, southeast, whatever, you always go south, you always go down from, because you go up to Jerusalem. So that's the meaning of that particular phrase. So it is, it is north of Jerusalem. But the phrase went down simply means that Samaria is lower in elevation, you see, than Jerusalem. And so Philip went down to Samaria, and he took the call given by Jesus very seriously. He took the call given by Jesus quite seriously. What was the call? We read it last week. We read it a long time ago. We studied it. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, notice, and in all Judea, and... Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, Judah wasn't a problem for most of the Jews at that time. Uh, I should say Judea wasn't a problem for most of the Jews at that time. But Samaria was. Samaria was a big problem to the Jews at that time. Now, Philip, being a Hellenist, again, a Greek Jew, coming not from Judea or from Jerusalem itself, coming from outside, living in some other region, uh, of the world than, than, than in, in, in Israel. He was not so marked with those narrow prejudices as, as the others. And, and so he took to what was not a popular mission field. If Jesus said we're going to go into Samaria, then we've got to go into Samaria. So, uh, Samaria was a small province to the north of Judea, which had been settled with pagans by the Assyrians some 600 years before replacing and deporting thousands of Israelites from the northern kingdom. So they, they took these, these uh, Israelites out of the northern region there, or the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, where Samaria was, and they replaced them with a bunch of pagan people from uh, a lot of places. Well, let's read it. Second Kings chapter 17. Turn there in your Bibles, and then you want to mark this and see uh, 
where the foundation of this understanding of Samaria is. Second Kings 17. I'll give you just three verses. Verses 24 through 26. It says, Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon. Look at all the people that came to settle in Samaria. He brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. So they, was, they, were, you know, they were replaced. And, and they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so, at the beginning of their dwelling there, that they did not fear the Lord. And I think that's significant. You know, they didn't come in wanting to take the religion of the Israelites. You know, they just came in with their own ideas and religions and thoughts. And so they didn't come in fearing the Lord. As a matter of fact, why would they fear the Lord? I mean, they just conquered them and taken, them, taken over the land. And so here they are replacing those people. They didn't fear the Lord, and therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which kill some of them. <laughs> you better believe in the Lord here, because you don't want to get eaten by lions. But, uh, so, anyway, uh, they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, Hey, the nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God. You see, the people are always concerned about rituals, you know. It wasn't a matter of ritual, it was a matter of knowing God. But it says, oh, they do not know the rituals of God, of the God of the land, and therefore he has sent lions among them, and indeed, they're killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. I only say that because the account goes on to record that they settled for an illegitimate form of Judaism. Well, if we're going to live in this land, we might as well accept some of what uh, you know they did and what they did religiously. So they accepted an illegitimate, I should say, an illegitimate form of Judaism, and they built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, which they regarded as equal to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Now, that is a prominent thought when Jesus goes into Samaria and he meets with a woman at this well and one of the conversations they have is about worship and they begin to talk about the places of worship and she mentions Mount Gerizim. So that's uh, tying all of this stuff together. And this was the reason for the deep-rooted resentments between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews never accepted the Samaritans. They never, you know, I mean, they considered them and their land unclean. No self-respecting Jew would of his own preference go to Samaria. They would not do it. I can imagine the day that Jesus went and his disciples, you know, kind of like, we're going here, we're going to go in there, you know. I mean, but they followed Jesus, but I'm sure they were looking around. Well, nobody sees us, you know. Their cloaks over their heads or something. But nonetheless, no self-respecting Jew of his own preference go to Samaria. But we know that Jesus did. And we know that Philip did. In Acts 8, verse 6, it says in the multitudes, Philip goes in to Samaria. And it says in the multitudes with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame. They were healed and, and there was great joy in that city. And so Jesus went in there, spoke to one person who spoke to many others. What did she do? She evangelized. She shared what God through Christ had done for her. We'll see that in a moment. When Philip went in, multitudes were affected. Think about this, though. Jesus, in some way, had sown the seed 
And Philip began to reap the harvest. So when looking back at the life of Stephen, we find that he was described as performing wonders and signs among the people. Acts chapter 6 verse 8 says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And now we see Philip doing the same. And what really needs to be considered about these two men is that neither of them were apostles. Neither of them were apostles. You see, this, this, kind, of a, this, this kind of goes against the grain of those who say, listen, uh, all of the signs and wonders that ever happened ceased when the apostles died. As if to think that only the apostles did signs and wonders. We're told here right away that not only the apostles had, had to, you know, did wonders and signs, but even the waiters, even the table servers who were full of the Holy Spirit. And who were these men? Who was Stephen? Who was Philip? Who were they? They were just ordinary, everyday believers in Jesus whom God chose to empower with those gifts and abilities. Everyday, ordinary believers. That sounds like us here. Aren't we just everyday, ordinary believers in Jesus Christ who make ourselves available to the Lord so that He can fill us so that we might go do the things that will honor Him and bless Him? That we might go forth and present the gospel of Jesus Christ to people so that they might be saved from this world and saved from destruction? Isn't that a miracle in itself that God would use us to tell somebody about Jesus whose life will be changed for eternity? Listen, rather than argue whether the Lord does or doesn't do those things today, we should just go about preaching God's word and sharing the love of Christ with the world and then let's see what follows. Because throughout the book of Acts it tells us that signs and wonders followed the preaching of the word of God. That's the order. That's the way it should be. And the greatest sign and wonder that could ever happen is to see somebody that is dead in trespasses and sin become alive in Christ. And lives are changed. And ways are changed. And motives are changed. And hearts are changed. And directions are changed. Why? Because of the preaching of the gospel. That's a sign and wonder. Let's not overlook that. Let's not overlook the very fact that we sit here today, many of us, because Jesus Christ touched us. And our lives were changed for eternity. Wasn't that a sign? Wasn't that a wonder? We say it's a wonderful thing. Well, sure, it's full of wonder. Why? Because we didn't do it on our own. And had not Jesus looked to us with love and compassion, where would we be today? Where would we be? Let's see what God chooses to do. Let us see what God chooses to do for His glory and honor when we honor and glorify Him before men. Isn't that what we're supposed to be as believers in Jesus Christ? People who will honor God before men? Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16 of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. Why are too many Christians walking around today with a big basket over themselves? I mean, not really. I mean, there's not literally a basket. You know, oh, there goes a Christian who doesn't want to be seen because you know, he's got a big, bird, you know, big basket over their head. No. But it's, it, it's as if we do that very same thing. We don't put a light, uh, we don't light a lamp and then put it under a basket, but we put it on the lampstand. For what reason? So that it can be seen and it gives light to all who are in the house and things can be found because of that light. 
And Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We want to see what God chooses to do for His glory and honor when we glorify and honor Him before men. And there was a day when we did not honor and glorify God until someone shared the good news with us. And when we received Jesus Christ, then we began to glorify God. Because we honored and glorified God, others will come to honor and glorify Him. Now we're told in our text that the multitudes gave heed to those things that Philip spoke. And it's a very interesting phrase that we're given. It says, hearing and seeing the miracles which He did. Hearing and seeing the miracles which He did. I've already kind of spoken a little bit about hearing the miracles. Because most people think that miracles is all about seeing them. Seeing the miracles. What about hearing them? When we hear that someone has changed from death into life. That's a miracle. That's a testimony. But normally we think of miracles in terms of what we see, but miracles can be heard as well. And Philip, you see, Philip wasn't preaching some form of Reformed Judaism or some other religious system. I mean, they already had religion. What they needed was a Savior. And what they needed was Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They, I, and I'm sure, that, I'm sure that just the name itself... Just the name of Jesus, preached under the influence of the Holy Spirit, warmed and, they, and moved their hearts. How many times it is when we just hear the name of Jesus sung or, or the, the name of Jesus stated, that we respond with, just with, with, with praise of our, of, of our own. We've heard the name. What a joyous name. What a beautiful name. What a wondrous name. I love to sing the name of Jesus. I love to say the name of Jesus. Because I know that that name has been given to us who believe. And we know what's behind that name. But think of the power of the Holy Spirit when that name and the, and the Spirit are together. Warming, moving, changing the heart of people. As Philip preached the Word, he may, he may have reminded them. As he was preaching the Word, he may have reminded them of the story of that woman at the well. Because they would have probably heard about that. How she came there weary and unsatisfied to that well. Restless and and certainly sinful. And how she went away with great joy and satisfaction after having met Jesus. Look at John chapter 4 for just a moment in verse 28. After this conversation, after the things that Jesus said to her, the woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then they went out of the city and came to Him. And notice in verse 39, jump down there, John 4. And, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in Him because of the word of, of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. They are hearing this story. They are hearing the wonder. They are hearing the miracles that were taking place in the lives of those people. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. No self-respecting Jew would ever, you know, go there to Samaria. But Jesus did. He was the greatest Jew of all. And he went there and he stayed there. Why? I'll tell you in just a moment. <laughs> it says that many more believe because of his own word. And then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ 
the Savior of the world. They were touched by the things that Jesus said. You see, we can hear miracles and, as well as see them. And Philip might have even told them at the time that James and John, if you remember at one time, wanted to call down fire from heaven on Samaria, just because at one point in time, uh, you know, Jesus wanted to go to Samaria. You know, there, there was, you know, the Samaritans rejected Jesus for, for a time. And so James and John wanted to just call down fire from heaven onto Samaria and, and how Jesus rebuked them for their ignorance of the true nature of the Holy Spirit. And the result here being in Luke chapter 9, verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. And he said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Listen, that, that is tremendous. That is a tremendous statement. Yeah, I mean, that goes beyond everything that all other religions and all other things teach. That Jesus Christ Himself said, You don't know what manner of spirit you are of if you want Me to come and destroy Samaria. Because I did not come to destroy men's lives. I came to save them. Is it any wonder that Jesus spent days there in Samaria? When others wouldn't even walk, or, you know, they'd walk around. They'd even go into, into Petra. They'd go around, the, you know, into the Jordan area to, to avoid even stepping on Samaria. Jesus went. Why? Because he didn't come to destroy. He came to save. And I'm sure that Philip told them the wonderful story of Jesus who came from glory to die upon the cross so that they might have redemption through his very own blood. And all these things amount to words of wisdom. Think about this. We talk about words of wisdom as gifts of the Spirit. Well, listen. Words of wisdom, words of knowledge, words of prophecy and the teaching of the Word of God. Miracles to be heard as well as seen. Miracles to be followed by the conviction of the heart, by the Holy Spirit and the convincing of the heart by what was done. You see, there was conviction and there was convincing. Now, they're closely tied together, but understand it this way. They were convicted in their hearts. Because of the message preached. But they were convinced by what was done. Look at verse 7 of our text. Acts chapter 8 verse 7 says, For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Now they were convinced because they saw. They saw what Jesus did. And again, Jesus was doing this, wasn't He? Even though it was through Philip. It wasn't the apostles. It was through Philip. A simple deacon, table server, waiter who made himself available to go to Samaria because Jesus commanded it. And look what happened. It was through Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit in Philip who was freeing the Samaritans from the bondage of demons and diseases. Through Philip. He did it then Jesus, and He continues to do it now. I believe that God still heals today. I believe that God still delivers people from demonic possession and oppression. I believe that because the Word of God teaches that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And our part is to bring the Word of God to people. That is our part. Signs and wonders will follow as the Lord sees fit. But we need to realize that these afflictions are common in all ages, not only during the quote-unquote apostolic age, as it were. 
Because modern psychology has done much to turn our attention from demonic activity and in effect belief in demons. And the Lord would want us to know. He, he teaches us about uh, principalities and powers. The apostles te- uh, taught us about principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age. We're to know that they're there. We're not to deny them. We're also to know the very fact that the demons believe and they tremble. It says that some people here ought to be trembling in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If the demons believe and tremble but they're not saved, what about those who think that they're saved but they don't tremble at the power of God? The demons tremble. So psychology today, modern psychology, is always not, it's not demonic it's it's problems like you know from their from their perspective i should say they have explanations oh listen their phobias their psychoses their syndromes of all types in them we find the causes for our depressions and distortions in childhood and sex and in heredity but none of it gives credibility to what the word of god says about demon possession and oppression and it's still around And if people would just open their eyes and their minds and their hearts, they would discover that demons are just as active in the 21st century as they were in the first. And I'm not here to glorify them. I tell you what, Jesus is powerful over every one of them. There's not one demon that Jesus can't take out. And bind and keep bound. But the true power for deliverance remains the same as well, you see. The name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. The name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4-6, through 6, Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. And by the way, that, that would include, you know, the, carn, the carnal is not just the flesh, but it's also the, you know, the, the, you know, the mindset. So, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all obedience when your obedience is fulfilled. A lot of talk about obedience here, but that's a great important role in our lives, to obey Christ. When we surrender all of these other things, it is to begin to obey Christ, to follow Jesus, to follow His Word, to follow His ways, and being ready to punish all that disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Let me ask you a question. Are we beyond all that today? Are we beyond all that today because of modern psychology? Are we beyond all that? Does Jesus not continue to heal, deliver, and save? Isn't He still the same yesterday, today, and forever? Because the Word of God says so. Let's look at the results of what happened when Philip, this simple table server, this simple uh, waiter, this simple cafeteria worker, goes into Samaria, a place where no other Jews wanted to go, but he went. Why? Because he he obeyed Christ. And notice what the results of all of that was taking place. People were getting saved, they were getting healed, they were getting delivered, and, and, and I mean, demons were just, you know, fleeing the place. And what happened? What was the result of all that? Verse 8 says, and there was great joy in that city. There was great joy in that city. Folks, this verse is not speaking of a bunch of you know, slap-happy people. Happiness is, in, in the world, happiness is conditional. Happiness is conditional. A lot of people will be happy today if the Cowboys beat the Patriots. They'll be happy. All right. 
But if it doesn't happen, what are you going to do? As believers in Jesus Christ, if you like the Cowboys, and if, and, and if they lose, I hope not, but if they, if they do, you know, what's going to, you know what's going to happen? You're still going to be joyful. Do you understand the difference? You still have joy, not because of that. You might, you, you know, you might like, oh, not again, you know, that kind of thing. But it's just, that's just in the world. See, in the Spirit of God, we have joy. Folks, that's a big difference. So what I'm trying to get to you is that joy is, a, is, is another matter altogether. People can be happy in this life and even be able to sustain some sense of happiness throughout, but you cannot have joy without being born again of the Spirit of God. And the reason of that joy, by definition, uh, and the reason is that joy, by definition, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit that indwells you. It indwells you. See, that can't change. It is, it is in you. It is part of you. And now you're joyous over you know, everything that God does. And even in the midst of trials, you're joyous. You rejoice. Why? Because God is in control. You see, consider the first fruits of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit, uh, Galatians 5, verse 22, by the way. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, notice, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such. There is no law. Joy. The people were sincerely joyous over the things that were happening in their midst because one simple, ordinary, normal just believer goes in there and tells them about Jesus and God uses him to change the lives of people. That was a revival, folks. And a revival of this sort will always produce rejoicing. Psalm 107, verses 21 and 22 says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare His works with rejoicing. That is the way a Christian is to live his life. That is how you are to de- deliver that message. That is how you are to declare that, that the good news of Jesus Christ with joy. Why? Because your heart's changed. You don't belong to the world anymore. You belong to Jesus Christ. Now, there is a biblical happiness, by the way. There is a biblical happiness that we can consider to be a joyful blessedness. And that's Psalm 144, verse 15, that says, Happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. That is a blessed joyfulness or a joyful blessedness. You take your pick. It's the same thing. A joyful blessedness, a blessed joyfulness, but joyfully blessed people are those whose God is the Lord. And joyfully blessed are those who consider it a privilege to faithfully preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to proclaim the royal message of Jesus Christ with divine authority. We are to just give thanks to God for the privilege of preaching faithfully. When I say that, it is to share the good news, it is to declare and to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And just as Jesus had sown the seed in Samaria during his earthly ministry, and I said this before, Philip reaped the harvest. Just as he did that, let us trust that the Lord has sown his seed in our world so that we can reap a harvest unto the kingdom of God. Let us preach faithfully the word of God. But as we come to the table of communion this morning, I want to ask you those questions once again. Because I want it to be something that you'll meditate upon today. That as you take the bread and the cup, 
the symbols of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. As we come thankfully and joyfully to the table of communion to give thanks to God for sending His Son Jesus Christ to us. Let us consider those questions I asked you earlier. Are we simply talking about Jesus and introducing Him to the people that we encounter? Is it a natural consequence of our own intimacy with the risen Lord? I would just ask you today to pray just you and the Lord, as you're taking those elements and holding them, as we're waiting, as we're hearing the song or whatever, but, but in, your, in the deepest part of your heart, just ask, Lord God, if I haven't been intimate with you as I need to be, let that start right here, right now, today. I know that I'm a sinner. I, I know that I have faults. I know that I stumble. I falter. But I know that you're a God of mercy and grace. And I know that you love me. And I know that you forgave me on the cross. So Lord, based on that blood of Jesus Christ today, as, as, we're, as we're celebrating this, this wondrous, wondrous communion, Lord, help me. Fill me with your Spirit so, so that we can develop this intimacy together so that out of that, the natural consequence of my life will be my sharing the Gospel with others. Would you pray for that today? As you take the bread and as you take the cup, let's pray.